Hey, good morning, everyone. My name's Scott, and it's great to be with you this morning. Glad that you are here. We are in our third week uh, in a study of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. So this is called Ephesians, and it is a beautiful book. It's a dense uh, letter that Paul wrote, and his opening chapter is he's just actually uh, giving like a benediction over them and now telling them like why he prays for them. And, and it's just so powerful. That's what we're going to be looking at today is Paul is telling them that that he prays for them and what he's been praying for them about. And so we're going to look at that right now. I'm going to read it. Chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. It'll be on your screen and it's in your bulletin as well. Paul writes this. Uh, for this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not stop to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes, um, excuse me, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his greatness, his great might that he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. So, would people describe you uh, as an optimist or a pessimist? Do you walk on the sunny side of the street or the shady side? <laughs> Is the glass half full or the glass half empty? And a good deal, I think, of how we operate like that in life has to do with your personality. Let's face it, it just is kind of how you're wired. Uh, some of it has to do with your life experiences, like what has life taught you in the past? And then it also largely has to do with your current circumstances. Are you upbeat? Some of you, though, are just upbeat no matter what. Like, it doesn't matter what's happening in life. You just are. And others of you are just Eeyore, you know, no matter what. It doesn't matter how good it is. And some of us ebb and flow, like just rise and fall with a number of things, circumstances. But today, what we're going to see, kind of a a main overarching idea, the the main thing towards which Paul is praying for the church, and that includes us, is that we have a hope that supersedes our personality, that supersedes our experiences in life, and that is above even our circumstances right now, that there is a, a hope that goes beyond all these things. And one of the things that we say around here quite a bit is this. In order for something to actually serve as something you hope in, you have to really want that thing. There has to be desire uh, for that, like a preferred future, something to happen. And you have to have longing towards that. So if I said, hey, hang in there, everyone. At lunch, you all get broccoli, right? Um, Even for those of us that like broccoli. I like broccoli. 
but that's, that's not going to inspire a ton of hope for me, right? It has to be something you really want, really long for, and in my opinion, it has to be based in some reality. It has to be based in some reality. I hope the Cardinals win the Super Bowl this year. But, <laughs> yeah. okay, are you guys mad at me or are you like you with me? I don't, I don't know what happened there. But um, I hope that but there needs to be basis of reality. Otherwise, it's just wishful thinking, right? And, and many of you might be thinking, well, that's, what not, you know, that's why I'm not a Christian. I don't know if it's based in reality. And if the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, Paul says, yes, we Christians are the worst, the, the greatest fools in the world because it's, this is so important to us. And he's going to point us towards the resurrection. The first thing I want us to see this morning is the thanksgiving that Paul shares for the church. Thanksgiving for the church. In verse 16, Paul says, I don't stop thanking the Lord for you in prayer. He's kind of saying, like, I continually pray for you. And every time I pray for you, I do so with thanksgiving. And this is a beautiful thing. And Paul says that in spite of living in great suffering, I'm praying for you. This is beautiful about Paul. This is something about Paul. He has this eternal hope in the resurrection. And his current circumstances are not good. He's imprisoned for his faith again. And, and instead of saying, pray for me, which is how many of us would roll if we were in prison, I would be sending out letters and emails and texts saying, you are praying for me, right? And you're trying to get me out of here. But instead he's saying, I remember you constantly in my prayers with thanksgiving. And the two reasons why he's so thankful for them is their faith in the Lord Jesus, he says, and their love for all the saints. Their faith and their love for all the saints. And in a sense, of course, every Christian and every Christian church should be known for those two things, right? Their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and their love for all the saints. Jesus said in John 13, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. If you love one another, this will be an indication to the world that you are my followers. So this is the first century, guys. This is an unlikely time for people to follow Jesus. There have never been Christians before during this time. When somebody was converted to the Christian faith, uh, they had very few examples of, of, of a Christian, right? They, they were the very first ones. This is the very first century of, of Christian faith. A new church in a city would be the first church. They're all First Baptist Church, right, uh, in, in the city. It's the first establishment of, of Christianity. There are very few temporal and societal benefits for being a Christian, right? I mean, Paul's in jail for being a Christian. Hey, be a Christian. <laughs> uh, there are many obstacles to becoming a Christian. There's very few benefits. There's no political power because you're a Christian. There's no, there's no joy in your family if you're baptized, right? Because they're among Gentiles who are pagans, who are who are worshiping at the temple of Artemis in downtown uh, Ephesus. If you're in a Jewish context, you're Jewish. You, Jesus is, they're saying, not the Messiah. And so these people are the very first Christians that have ever existed. These churches are the very first churches that have ever, ever existed. And so Paul is so thankful for them. And, and he loves that they have faith. And he loves their, the fact that they're loving one another so well. 
And so, unlikely people, these Gentiles, are coming to faith, and that faith and hope that they have is changing the very trajectory of their lives. And he's so encouraged by that. They love one another. They are loving their neighbor. And I want to encourage you with this. Uh, we, we're living in a time where there has been previously, you know, in America, there, there were days not that long ago when there were societal benefits to be a Christian. That it felt like the majority of people you knew had some background in Christianity. That it would be a benefit to you. There have been times in our nation when there is political capital to, to be in that group and among Christians. There is power. There is influence. But we sense that that's becoming less and less and less. And that our faith is fine for you to believe, but don't bring it into the public sphere, right? More and more we're feeling as if we're being pushed to the margins, but I want to encourage you to not be afraid in this and that God is not vexed by this. And, and God is not fearful and God is not uh, overcome by this that literally the gates of hell cannot prevail against Jesus building his church. And while it may be difficult here in America during this moment, there are other parts of the world where the faith is flourishing in, in, in amazing and encouraging ways. But let us not grow uh, fearful. And I know it's most difficult though when it's somebody that you love personally. And we're seeing people deconstruct their faith, walk away from the faith. And it's a scary, scary thing. But I want, I want you to take heart. God is still on his throne. And there's great hope. He prays with thanksgiving for the church. And he prays, uh, he prays this prayer for the church. And I want to reread it in verses 16 uh, through 18. And it, it's so beautiful. Would you let the words... Uh, <laughs> Really focus and meditate on what he's saying. And if you've got a Bible at home, look at this this week. It's, it's unbelievable. He says, I, I don't stop praying for you with thanksgiving. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. I remember you in my prayers. And, and this, he begins to tell us what he is praying for, for them. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you, church, a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him, also that your eyes of your heart would be enlightened, and then he tells us ultimately why, his whole point. I want all these things to be true for you, that you have a spirit of wisdom, a revelation of knowledge of him, and your eyes of your heart enlightened, in order that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, that there are riches of his glorious inheritance as the saints. And then in a minute, he's going to talk about the power of the resurrection. He's praying for us to have hope. He begins, though, I, I, I pray for a spirit of wisdom. And th what he's talking about is the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our life that brings us wisdom. Uh, that teaches us who God is and what is true and what is his will. He says, you have some of that, and I'm so thankful, right? I'm so thankful for your faith, and I'm praying for more. I want more wisdom. Then he says this, I, I pray that you'll have a revelation. Um, you'll see who God is, that you'll have knowledge of him, and not just mind knowledge or intellectual knowledge, but you'll know him, know his character. And friends, this is so important. 
when I was a younger follower of Jesus, a newer follower of Jesus, I can remember having certain thoughts about God, and I can remember saying things like, I don't know if I ever actually said it, but my God would never, or my God is like this. Or, and then you begin to read the scripture, and like, oh, God's different than me. In fact, every time I keep saying my God this and my God that, it sounds as if God just always agrees with me. Isn't this fantastic? That maybe I'm God, right? If, if my God is always agreeing with me. You need a knowledge of who God actually is, not just the way you're making him up in your own heart, in your own mind. We need God to show us who he is. And God is using, even in this moment, um, Paul's letter to us, to tell us who God is. God has shown us through nature who he is. In Psalm 19, there's, there's natural revelation, right? It says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Nature is shouting to us, there's a creator and he's glorious. Look, look around you. And he's done so, so much that Paul says that man, humanity is without excuse, ultimately, at least from saying, there is a creator and I need to know who that creator is. Because nature is so beautifully speaking a story of God's glory. But we need more than that. We need special revelation. We need divine revelation. We need God's word to us. And ultimately, the ultimate God's word to us is the person of Jesus himself. He's praying for that. He prays for wisdom. He prays for knowledge. He prays in, in, for enlightenment. In the, but again, once again, the big crescendo of this passage is this. In order that you may know the hope to which you are called. I don't know if you're called uh, to this job that you're looking at. I don't know. I don't know uh, whether you should uh, stay here in Phoenix. I hope so, but I don't know. I hope uh, that, you know, uh, I don't know if you're called to marry her or him. I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure. But I know that you're called to hope. Certain things God has made clear. And as followers of Jesus, this is what Paul is saying. I pray you have so much faith. I want you to have more. You have so much love, but I want you to have more. And ultimately what I'm, I'm praying is you'll understand how much you have to hope in, regardless of circumstances, regardless of your personality, and regardless of life's experiences. This is what Paul is praying for. And then, and then he tells us the reasons for hope. And he's going to explain why we have so much to hope in. But isn't it great to have somebody that comes up to you and says, I'm praying for you. And a lot of people tell me that and, and you know, it's nice. But here's what's really nice. When somebody says they're praying for me and I know they actually pray a lot. It's one thing to say, I'm praying for you, and that's nice, and maybe you do briefly, but like, there are some people in my life that are prayer warriors, and if they're praying, I know they're praying. And so what Paul is saying, this is a man of prayer, Paul, here's what I'm praying for you, and here's why, here's why, and now let me tell you why you need to hope, and we should listen. He gives us these reasons for hope, and the first is this, we have a hope, he says, in a glorious inheritance. Now, um, 
Ephesus was placed in modern-day Turkey, but at the time, it was part of, it was the Greco-Roman Empire, and for the Greeks and for the Romans, uh, glory was a huge theme for, the, uh, for them, and Paul is appealing to them, I have a much greater glory and power for you. They loved power, they loved glory, and he's saying, I have power and glory for you that supersedes anything you've ever experienced. There is hope, he says, of a glorious inheritance, and we mentioned this last week as well. This idea of inheritance. Inheritance can make some people sloths, right? I have all this money coming to me. Why do I have to work? Why do I have to do anything? But for other people, it gives them freedom and hope. The hope of inheritance, this is what Paul wants for us. Freedom to live by faith and to take risks. What have I to lose? I have a glorious inheritance. A freedom to do what is important in life instead of what is expedient in life. I have a glorious inheritance. Freedom to have hope when times are difficult. I have a glorious inheritance. And the thing about inheritance in this life, uh, unless like it's an enormous one, it's too, it's too uh, easy to fluctuate. Like uh, you may be going to uh, inherit something from your parents or your grandparents, but you don't know if they'll need all that money at the end of their life. Caring for people at the end of life now is so expensive. That money may not be there. The stock market, if they're invested in the stock market, rises and falls. It could be gone. Real estate, the same. It, it feels tenuous, but not the inheritance that we have. Because ultimately our inheritance is not in stuff, it's in God himself. He is our inheritance. Some, from, some unforeseen thing may come up in this life, but not, not in the inheritance we have in Jesus. The next thing Paul says is this, hope in the greatness of God's power. You have a glorious inheritance, and now he says, I want you to hope in the greatness of God's power. I'm scared for people when they lose hope. And there's so much despair right now and so little hope. And and one of the reasons I think that people lose hope is they feel powerless over their circumstances in life. You've probably been there. People lose hope when they begin to feel powerless over their circumstances. But the beautiful thing of what Paul is talking about here is there is a power that is available to us that goes far beyond our own power and and our own resources. And the greatest display of power that the world has ever seen is when God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He not only raised him to be back alive again, like Lazarus was raised, or uh, Jairus' daughter, other people that died and were sick, and Jesus raised, who then went on to live their lives and die again. When Jesus died, he died and was buried, as you know, for three days, and then was risen with a resurrected body that was eternal, that now is our hope. And he's appealing to us to say this, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that will raise you from the dead someday and will renew everything in this universe that is broken, wrong, and restore all things. Listen to what Paul says in verses 19 through 21, and forgive me for reading to you again because I know I just read it to you, but it's too good not to. (laughs) I'm praying that you'll have hope, which is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us that believe. 
even a mustard seed of belief. Even if you're not feeling the power, this is what is true. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, all authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Power. And God is saying, this is for you. Hope in this. That in, as in Christ, as followers of Jesus, we have union with Jesus and the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power and the same guarantee of your resurrection from the dead, the church's resurrection from the dead. The same power that raised Christ will raise the church. Verses 21 through 23, Jesus is above all authority, power and dominion. But can we admit for a second that at times it doesn't feel like that? As we read about what's happening in Ukraine, war, devastation, violence, evil leadership, and names like Putin are lifted up as all-powerful, all-authoritative, and, and we're saying, where, where is God's power? Do not be fooled. God is still on his throne. He is still the one who has the name above all names and all authority is in his hands. And there will be a day of accountability, judgment, and reckoning. Jesus is above every name. God put everything under his feet, meaning all authority, all power. He's the head over all things, including the church. And ultimately, he told us last week that God will restore all of creation in Jesus. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration, everything that's broken, everything that's dying, everything that's decaying, everything that's rusting, Jesus will restore when he returns in glory. The Russian author Leo Tolstoy, he wrote Anna Karina, Karina, War and Peace. He grew up Eastern Orthodox. And like a lit, many of his contemporaries, uh, left the faith, right? Left the church, left faith. But towards the end of his life, after everything was going great for him, he had amassed great wealth, he had a huge estate, and he was famous without the internet. Imagine, how can you do that? <laughs> his name was known throughout the Western world, and he had already achieved so much acclaim that he knew that his name uh, would live beyond his own life, that his works would, that his books would, uh, that he would be famous. And yet it wasn't enough. He wrote this. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? And this led him back to faith in Christ. You know, if things are going poorly for you in life, that's a challenge. But sometimes one of the worst things that can happen to you is for everything to go well for you in life in terms of having faith. And yet he was able to work through uh, this reality that you need a hope beyond what is temporal. That even if you have an amazing estate, even if you, everything has gone well for you, that you've got fame and riches and everything that you've ever dreamed, it's not enough and this is so hard to say, this, is, this doesn't preach to, uh, this doesn't feel positive and encouraging, but is there any meaning in my life that inevitably my death that awaits me will not destroy? 
Most of us spend all of our time avoiding that subject, not thinking about it. We move from one entertainment on, you know, on at night and Netflix or whatever to the next thing. I need another series. I need another thing to think about. And we are pushing away, pushing away the inevitable reality that every single one of us in this room will die. And that everything we know, everything we cherish, everything we love will eventually turn to dust. Yay. (laughs) And if you don't get a hope that is beyond what we can see and taste and touch, ultimately, Tolstoy is saying, you're crushed. We hope for our career advancement. We hope we have children. We hope for a, new vac- a good vacation. We hope to have more money, more pleasure, love and romance. We all hope in these things. We hope for friendship. But we live in a world where everyone dies, everything decays, and everything turns to dust. So if you're a thoughtful person and you're living just beyond the shallows of life, you can't avoid this. You must face it. And, and you need a hope that goes beyond the temporal or you'll fall into despair ultimately. But there is hope. And it's the hope of the resurrection. And this is what, Jesus, what Paul is pointing us to. In Jesus Christ, you have someone to hope in that supersedes this life. In Jesus Christ, you have something to hope in that goes way beyond. It can't be diminished. It can't be stolen. It can't rust. It can't be taken from you. And what does it look like to have a hope like this? And I'm so encouraged. One of the things about being a pastor that is such a gift is you're, you're with people in their highest of highs, but also their lowest of lows. And I get a little window as a pastor into people's lives when, when they're at their best and everything's going great and we're celebrating, but I'm also at a graveside often or in a hospital room where there's a prognosis, a bad prognosis that's been given. And I've seen time and time again, people, ordinary Christians, have hope. Hope when they shouldn't. From a worldly perspective. Hope hope when the prognosis is bad. Hope hope when even death comes. Hope even in a graveside. How? How? We pray all the time. Give us a peace that surpasses understanding, O Lord. Just as Paul said, and God does it. As I look around this room... Some of you are my heroes in the faith because I've seen your faith in the midst of great, great trial and difficulty. I've seen your hope. I've seen your faith. Friend, this is what you need. You wonder if it will come, and in that moment, I've seen time again the Holy Spirit provide it, but friends, this is what we need. And what would it look like? It began to change us to live with this hope. And the younger you are, the less likely you are to have it, but may God put you on a journey of hope, hope in the resurrection, prayer instead of complaint if you're hoping like this. You begin to to live your life more uh, instead of complaining but praying. Celebration instead of competition. Thankfulness instead of bitterness. Serving instead of consuming. Love instead of gossip. Encouragement instead of sarcasm. You're not ruled by all the world's events. You've got something bigger to hope in. Uh, you, you don't get caught up in all the politics of this world. You aren't destroyed or overjoyed by the stock market's rise and fall. You're willing to take more risk and chances. And ultimately, 
more and more you're living like the child of God that you are instead of the orphan that your heart lies to you about and says that you are. You begin to live more and more like the child of God that you are. In Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews writes this. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he's talking about the saints that have gone on before us. And and he's thinking about like a race. You know, and if you've ever run in a marathon or a half marathon, and I have not, but I've been to them. (laughs) I've been in the crowd among the saints. (laughs) (laughs) And it's the idea that the saints, and that's all Christians that have preceded us, are lining the streets and they're cheering for us as we're running the race of faith and life. And they're saying, keep it up, man. It's worth it. He says this, therefore, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses that are cheering. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? We look to Jesus the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who did what? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. I'd love to add, and I'm not a writer of the Bible, so I can't, the word hope there though. For the joy and the hope that was set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame and is seated at the right hand of the the Father on the throne of God. What does that mean What does that mean uh, for the joy that was set before him and the hope? Church, we are the hope. We are the joy that was set before him. The, the, The joy was this. He was running this race. He endured the cross. Why? So that the church would be saved. He died on the cross to save us. He did it for you. He did it for all of us. He did it for every follower of Jesus around the world that's ever been, ever is, and ever will be. What great glory, what beautiful. He did this for us. And here's the thing. You can't can't earn this. To get what Jesus offers, friend, you can't buy it. You can't earn it. You can't say, thanks for dying for me and living a perfect righteous life. I'm bringing my righteousness and my good deeds. I'm basically a good person. I hope you'll accept that. doesn't work like that in the kingdom of God. You can't buy it. Hey, can I get a little of Jesus and what he's done for me? I'd like to purchase that. No, in fact, the only way you can get it is to be impoverished, to have nothing and you go to him in your desperation and say, I bring nothing. I bring my brokenness. I bring my sin, my rebellion against you. I've got nothing unless you give this to me, Jesus. And the beautiful thing is, he does every time. Do you hear me? Every single time a person created it in his image but is a sinner and, and knows it and is willing to admit it, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one to whom all power and authority and dominion has been given to, every time Jesus says, yes, you're my daughter, you're my son. Every single time. And that could be true of you today. If you don't know him yet. There was a a time when I did not know the Lord. I thought I did. I prayed the sinner's prayer a thousand times, but I never really meant it. I just didn't want to be 
I didn't want the consequences. But I didn't love God, and I wasn't really ready to, like, to walk with him. or to. But friend, when you're ready, and you've got nothing, and you know it, you've got nothing. You can't buy it, you can't earn it, you've got nothing. And you know it, and you're willing to go to him. He will say yes to you every time and say, I forgive you and I love you. And everything I've got is yours. A glorious inheritance and resurrection from the dead and eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we admit that we have so little hope and we need more. We have faith, but we need more. We have knowledge, we need more. We have enlightenment, we need more. Father, would you give it to us? Thank you for Brother Paul, who suffered in this life, who was imprisoned, beat, beaten, mocked, flogged, ultimately killed. Would you give us his perseverance? Would you give us the hope that Christ has for us in the resurrection. We beg you in Jesus' good name, amen.